Hebrews chapter 11, we begin in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should hereafter receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 19. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Verse 8, we read these words, By faith, Abraham. By faith, Abraham. If you know anything about the background of this epistle to the Hebrews, then you know that the Hebrews were facing a challenge in the matter of living by faith. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry, the author writes in chapter 10 and verse 37, now the just shall live by faith. That's a very simple precept on the surface of it. We know it to be true. But we also know that living by faith becomes a challenge to the believer when the circumstances of life, consisting in the things which are seen, convey harsh and stern realities, while the things believed by faith, which are things unseen, seem at times to become more abstract and theoretical than real. And yet it can be done. Paul himself was a striking example of what it meant to live by faith. He could refer to his own numerous afflictions as light afflictions, which were working for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, 
while he looked not at the things which were seen, but at the things which were unseen. Second Corinthians 4.17. And I hope that you take note of that reference. Second Corinthians 4.17. I know of no verse that is so rich and so practical when it comes to the matter of walking by faith and making your afflictions light and transient. That happens when you focus on the unseen things. If you are focused on the seen things, then your afflictions are going to seem unbearably heavy, and they're going to seem to last a long, long time, longer than you can bear. Second Corinthians 4.17, highlight that one and rehearse it to yourself, memorize it, and, uh, and preach it to yourself in days like these. Paul was certainly not a unique or even a rare example when it came to living by faith. We've noted that this 11th chapter of Hebrews catalogs many more who lived by faith and go so far as to make some broad generalizations about all those who live by faith. It's as important to note in this 11th chapter those that are unnamed as much as those that are named. So in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, and oh, you should, uh, if you have a margin, you should write in the margin, here is true saving faith. You have here the best description of it. This is how you can discern true saving faith from that which is not true saving faith. Listen to what it says. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And like I say, this gives uh, what I take to be the best definition of true saving faith. Let me break it down here just very quickly. I may come back and devote a message to it, though I'm sure I've preached on it in the past. But note, if you would, there is a cognizant element to faith. They saw the promises. There is substance to their faith. There is content to their faith. In other words, they saw the promises. They were knowledgeable of what those promises were. Then there's a persuasive element to faith. Not only did they see the promises, but it says they were persuaded of the promises. You know, though, you can actually go that far. You can have knowledge of the promises. You can even be persuaded of their uh, validity and their truthfulness and still be lost. And so it goes on to say that there is a volitional element to faith. In an act of the will, we read that they embraced the promises. Or in other words, there was a personal appropriation of the promises to their own lives by faith. They embrace the promises, and that leads to a confessional aspect of faith. We go on to read, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Tremendous 
definition there that lends itself to a very clear analysis of the elements that make up true saving faith. And notice, if you will, that the verse gives us a generalization about faith. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and so on. What is being discussed in this verse then pertains to all that live by faith. And so the question we dealt with last week was this, what does it mean to live by faith? Last week we considered how Noah answers that question for us. We come to consider today how Abraham answers that question for us. We read in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whither he went. Abraham is a key figure, you might say, when it comes to the subject of faith. It is said of him first that he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, Genesis 15.6. Abraham and David are key figures used by Paul to teach the doctrine of justification by faith. Believers who follow the example of Abraham's faith are said to be the children of Abraham, pertaining as much to the Gentiles as it does to the Jews. Galatians 3 and verse 7 which indicates to us that Abraham is the father of the faithful. Christ spoke of Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Christ says in John 8, 56. And he saw it and was glad. What did Christ mean by that? Well, he was referencing that time when Abraham had been called up into the mount to offer his son Isaac. He's about to slay his son in obedience to the command, and he sees a ram caught in a thicket in the brush right after God prevents him from following through on sacrificing his son. And he sees that ram in the thicket, and he offers the ram instead. And with reference to that event, Christ says that Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day And he saw it and was glad. By looking at these New Testament references to Abraham, I think we're able to see, and this is a matter that is admittedly somewhat mysterious, what did the Old Testament characters know of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How much did they really understand? I tend to think they probably understood much more than they're generally given credit for. But be that as it may, okay, we're able to see that Abraham saw Christ's day, so he understood something, obviously, about Christ. He must have had some understanding of the substitutionary function of that ram uh, that he offered in the place of Isaac, Uh, It may very well be that he had some understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith. We know from Hebrews 11, and I think this is um, a very important thing to take note of, he looked forward to heaven. 
And he also believed in God's power to raise the dead. He certainly stands out, therefore, along with his wife Sarah, as one who can teach us much on the subject of faith. Let's look then a little more closely at this important character of the Old Testament by considering this afternoon the lessons that Abraham teaches us on the subject of faith. What does Abraham teach us on the subject of faith? Well, there is a lesson here that pertains to the world, the lesson on the world. I've entitled this. Look again at verses 8 through 10 with me. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For And then underscore this last part here especially. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is a rather strange situation when you think about it. Abraham was given the promise of the land of Canaan, and yet he lived in it like a stranger. He sojourned in it, the text says, and the word sojourn only occurs two times in the New Testament. It's a verb form for the phrase to be a stranger. I've often been struck by the words of Paul pertaining to Abraham in Romans 4, where he writes in verse 13, for the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Underscore that phrase, the heir of the world. That it was much more encompassing than to say he was to be the heir of a portion of real estate in the Middle East. And when you view Abraham as being an heir of the world, then you can appreciate that this is an inheritance that we as Christians will share with him. Blessed are the meek, Christ says in the Beatitudes, for they shall inherit the earth. And yet, like Abraham, we have no possessions in this world outside of what we're able to purchase along the way. The inhabitants of this world don't yield to us as if we're anybody special and have a claim on the land. Like Abraham, we are strangers and sojourners in this world. And yet again, like Abraham, we recognize a certain claim to this world in the sense that it will be Christ's followers in the end, for those are the ones who are the meek, who will inherit the earth. What then does Abraham teach us pertaining to our faith? He teaches us to keep a loose grip on the things of this world. He teaches us not to set our affections on the things of this world. I think you can see a pattern emerging in Hebrews chapter 11 in that respect. We considered in our last study how Noah condemned the world by the building of the ark. Now we see regarding Abraham that he was a stranger and a sojourner 
in the world. And the way to keep the world in the right perspective is to learn the lesson Abraham teaches us on the right expectations in this world. Abraham's expectation is given to us in verse 10, (coughs) where we read, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I think it's fair to conclude that Abraham knew that this world was to undergo a complete and thorough transformation. Old things would pass away and all things would become new so far as this world is concerned. Peter tells us in his second epistle that our expectation is the same and that it's based on the same promise. 2 Peter 3.13 Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I cannot deny that when I think of all the misery that this present world affords, this expectation of new heavens and a new earth I find to be comforting and exhilarating to my soul. Thank God there's a better world to come. Boy, if I thought the present state of things was going to go on forever, I think uh, I'd be too discouraged to get out of bed in the morning. There's a better world to come. No more will will we be called upon to pray for those that have cancer and have to undergo some trauma to be healed. No more will nation rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. No more will they have to live with the constant reminder that this present world is under a curse and the evidence of that curse is apparent when we read or hear in the news of floods and storms and hurricanes and forest fires. All of the current hype that's prevalent on the subject of global warming should serve to remind us that this present world is passing and the new and better world is to come. And when that new world arrives, then will we as Christians be perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. Then will we praise God the way we ought. Then will we know holiness as we ought. Then will we know communion with our God the way we should. And then will sin be once and for all left behind us. And the saints will be perfectly united in the fear of God and love of Christ. The very thought of it should fill and thrill your soul. What does Abraham's faith teach us then? It teaches us to be a forward-looking people. That in itself can set us apart from this present world. How many are there in the world, and especially is this true of baby boomers? They are so fond of reminiscing on the past as if to suggest there used to be those good old days. I view those days myself of being days of sin and misery. And there's nothing about them that I glory in. Indeed, I thank God that he has saved me from those good old days. 
So Abraham's faith teaches us to look forward to a better world to come. It teaches us to keep a loose grip on the things of this world. Listen to the words of Psalm 62 and verse 10. Trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. If the things of this world seem terrible, keep in mind that for the believer, this is all the misery that we're ever going to know. And if the things of this world seem glamorous and appealing, keep in mind that earthly treasures are corruptible and transient, and only what we do for Christ will have lasting value. So we have this lesson on the world taught to us by Abraham's faith. Consider with me, secondly, and I'll make this my final point this afternoon, that the faith of Abraham conveys to us a lesson in theology. A theology lesson. References made to Sarah, Abraham's wife, in verse 11. Notice what it says. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Notice that theological statement. She judged him faithful who had promised. She believed, in other words, in a covenant-keeping God who is faithful to his word. This theological aspect of Sarah's faith was something that she had in common with her husband Abraham. Romans 4, verse 20 through 22, make reference to Abraham, and it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Isn't that tantamount to saying that Abraham, like his wife, judged God to be faithful also? What he has promised, he is able to perform, even when it appears, as it certainly did with Abraham and Sarah, that this was impossible. How does someone above 90 years old bring forth a child? When I noticed this statement about Sarah, compared it to the statement about Abraham in Romans 4, it occurred to me that this is the kind of theology that every married couple needs to have in common. Here is something that's foundational to a good and happy marriage. Husband and wife both believe in the faithfulness of God. And it's important that both husband and wife believe this, so when one of them wavers, the other can take up the slack, so to speak. And if you've read the narrative in the book of Genesis about Abraham and Sarah, then you'll know that there were times when each one of them wavered, there was even a time when they both wavered. I'm reminded of the time when Sarah gave her handmaid to Abraham that he might have children by her. They felt in that instant that God needed a little help in order to keep his promise. 
Then there was that occasion when the angels visited Abraham in Genesis 18, shortly before they embarked on their mission to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Sarah laughed at the notion that she would ever bear a child. She was beyond childbearing years, and yet our text in Hebrews 11 tells us, nevertheless, that she judged him faithful who had promised. So while Abraham and Sarah judged him to be faithful and believed that God was able to perform what he had promised, there were, nevertheless, times when doubts gripped their hearts. This is why I say it's important for husband and wife to believe in the faithfulness of God. I might add here that this is certainly one of the reasons that church is so important, that we uphold one another in this regard. As those who come to church uh, weak, with their faith perhaps wavering, they from their time in the Lord's house gain a perspective adjustment and have their faith strengthened again. Let me say also while I'm on this point that in spite of how popular the notion of faith has become in our culture today, the value of a man or woman's faith can only be measured by the object of their faith. I'm aware that there are studies that show, and I think Martin Lloyd-Jones actually cites this in his book on spiritual depression, there are studies that show certain psychological benefits to having faith in anything or in any God. The important thing in our culture today then is only that you have faith. doesn't matter all that much what you believe in as long as you have faith in something. And I don't doubt that there can be psychological benefits to that. At the end of the day, this generic kind of faith amounts to little more than faith in faith. And faith in faith would certainly not do for the Hebrews to whom this letter was written. They were being sorely tried and afflicted. They were being duped into believing that all they needed to do was place their faith in the obsolete and apostate religion of Judaism. Were they to do so, they might have been able to escape some difficulties in their present lives, but there would be nothing left for them but a certain looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. What they needed, therefore, was the reminder and the encouragement of knowing that their faith was rightly placed in Christ. And that's why Christ is such a focal point in this epistle to the Hebrews, why he is shown to be superior to everything in that Mosaic dispensation. He's a superior sacrifice, superior priesthood. He was greater than Moses, etc., etc. Because the object of faith is the all-important thing. And by faith being rightly placed in Christ, they were trusting the one who was true to his promises. They were trusting the one who had gone through some fiery trials himself that they were now going through. And Christ had prevailed. 
They were trusting the one who was seated at the right hand of God, having purged their sins. They were trusting the one who had all power and authority committed to him, who was faithfully making intercession for them, even in the midst of their trials. So you begin to see a little bit, I hope, why theology is so important to our faith. The more we learn of our Savior, the greater will be our confidence in Him. The more we contemplate what He Himself endured for our salvation, then the more we'll identify with Him in our own sufferings, and the more we'll be convinced that He identifies with us in our sufferings. Abraham and Sarah both held exalted views of their God. Indeed, we're told something in Hebrews eleven nineteen that we're not told in the narrative of Genesis. We're told that when Abraham's faith was tested by God, by the commandment of God to Abraham to offer his son Isaac upon the altar, Abraham accounted that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Hebrews tells you that Genesis does not. It would have seemed to the fleshly eye to have been a nullifying of God's promise to Abraham by having him slay this child of promise that had at last arrived after so many years. But Abraham knew that could never be. God would never nullify his promise. And so if Abraham is to slay his son, it must mean that God would raise him up, even though such a miracle had never taken place at that period of time. Here is the kind of faith, then, that we need, faith that is grounded in the greatness of our God. In a sense, we have things easier in our day than Abraham had in his We know that God is all-powerful and can raise the dead. We have the testimony of God's Word in the Bible. We know that God can make a way in the wilderness for His people to go forward. We know that God can empower His people to do exploits. And we know that God can empower His people to overcome the world. The best lesson we can draw from Abraham's faith, therefore, is the lesson that we need to Hold our God in the same estimation of his greatness that Abraham held him. To the degree that we recognize our God and our Savior to be great and highly exalted, to that same degree we will persevere in our faith even when the waiting time is long and the trials become severe. Oh, may God help us then, grant to us that we will indeed have the faith of Abraham. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we confess to thee, Lord, that faith comes from thee We don't possess it inherently in and of ourselves. It's a gift from Thee. Grant us, O Lord, an increased measure of this gift. We would pray, Lord, even as the disciples prayed, increase our faith that we may 
endure the afflictions of this world and that we may have patience as we wait on thee. So hear our prayers and increase our faith and be exalted in our hearts and minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.